Ephesians chapter 3, uh, verses uh, 14 to 19. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Father, thank you for a few moments now to continue uh, our, our gathering together and uh, to continue around your word. And uh, thank you for this example of prayer that we now have as the Apostle Paul out of the fullness of his heart, now prays to you on behalf of these people. Father, may we allow this prayer to be something that resonates in our hearts and say, yes, I, I, I want you to do that for me. And Father, maybe it would encourage us on how we can pray for other people, how we can pray for our church or our loved ones, and how we might be able to um, add to our prayer arsenal of things that we should be praying for. Father, I thank you for these examples. I thank you for this book. I thank you that it's a living word, and I pray once again that you would make it come alive in our hearts today, that you would feed us um, from your word, and that we would go from here satisfied that we have learned a little bit more about you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was looking for definitions of prayer, and, and I've got a lot of them, and I thought, well, you know, they, they're not me. Um, and so I thought, well, I'll give you my definition of prayer. And it's not really a well-thought-out one. Uh, well, it's thought out. Um, it's maybe not as polished as some would be, but for me, Christian prayer is about talking to the Father. It's about talking to the Father through Jesus Christ, who gives us access, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, talking to the Father and prayer with our Father is very much like you having a conversation with a good friend, like you having a conversation with your spouse. You sit down and you talk with them about what's going on in your life. You ask them questions, they tell you about what's going on in their life. You, you share some of the things that you, you need, um, and it's this give and take. If you're having a bad day, you tell them about your bad day. If you're having a good day, you tell them about the good day. But it's this conversation that you cultivate with a good friend. That's how I view prayer. It's the cultivation of just this amazing relationship with the God of this universe, the one who created heaven and earth. And so when I go to God in prayer, sometimes I just tell him about my day. Sometimes I ask him for clarification in his word. Sometimes I come and I unload because it's been a tough day. Sometimes I make requests. Other times I seek forgiveness of him. Um, sometimes I ask advice. Other times I express thanks. Sometimes I just sit in his presence and just enjoy the feeling of knowing that I am a child of God. So that is what prayer for me is about. Paul is here in the second prayer now and already in these few short uh, chapters of Ephesians. And one of the things that fascinates me, and these are, uh, you notice the title of the message, Thoughts on Prayer. So here's my first thought on prayer. As I look at Paul's prayer and read it, I, I was kind of amazed and taken back again that when Paul prays, you find very little, if anything, about physical needs. Uh, he, he doesn't pray for that sort of stuff for these people, whether it be um, houses or jobs or, 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 or money or health or any of those kinds of things, you don't find them in the Apostle Paul. What you do find in his prayers, and, and his prayers are dotted through the letters that he writes, is he is praying about spiritual stuff. 
He's praying about the, the inner man stuff in people's lives. He, he's, he's talking about the, the, the things of the Spirit when he prays for people. And I think there's a, something to be learned from that in our praying. It doesn't mean that we set aside these physical things, but I think we ought to learn how to pray more for spiritual needs in people's hearts and lives. Because often when the spiritual gets into line, then the physical finds its right place. So one of the things that I just reflected on as I thought about this is everything that Paul prays for here is something spiritual. It's something inside of us, not anything related to, to physical being. Now, other thoughts that I had on prayer as we work our way here, and I was just thinking about some of the basics that Paul says. You may know all of these, and if you do, um, forgive me. Um, don't leave. There'll be a little bit more later on. But these are just some things that I noticed as I was going through here. And I asked uh, sort of a number of questions. First of all, I asked, what motivates your praying? What motivates my praying? Notice how Paul begins. He simply says, for this reason. Actually, he says that a few times in the letter. For this reason, then he goes into a prayer. Well, for Paul, what motivated his praying was he had been thinking about the amazing things of God. How, how God had, had, had worked this amazing reconciliation through Jesus Christ and brought people back together who were enemies. Who brought people back into a relationship with Him who hated Him. He had been talking about this amazing mercy and grace and love of God that took people who at one time were dead in their sins and their trespasses and made them alive together again with God. He'd been thinking about the hope that we have as Christians that God has given us. He was thinking about the family that we now belong to. He was thinking about the, the, the community that we now are part of as, as a group of Christians. He was thinking about this new temple that we are in which God dwells. And so all of that just drove Paul to praying. It's what motivated his prayer. And so I was asking myself and I ask you, what makes you pray? What is it that drives you to make requests before God? I think one of, the, one of the primary things that should drive us to prayer is just our reflection on Scripture. As we read and think about the Bible, as we read and think about the promises of God, as we think about the warnings of God, as we think about the stories of God, about the way of God in the world, that that should motivate us how to pray for ourselves, how to pray for our spouses, how to pray for our children, how to pray for our friends. Sometimes we, we, we don't really know why we pray. So we don't pray. But So the first question that just I ask is, why do you pray? Or what motivates you to pray? And I think at the very least, it should be some of the amazing truth and the things contained in the Word of God. Uh, the second thing that I asked about here is, does body posture matter? It doesn't matter um, how you are when you pray. Notice how Paul says, for this reason... I bow my knees before the Father. It's like Paul couldn't stay standing when he started reflecting on, the, on the, the might and the glory and the power of God. When you think about the Bible, I have looked and I can't find anywhere a command in the Bible about the proper posture in prayer. But I do know that the Bible talks about a lot of different postures in prayer. And I do know that posture reflects the inner attitude of the heart. And that sometimes our, our heart is reflected in our posture. And sometimes our posture brings our heart into line in a different way. And so some of the ways that um, people prayed. 
for the Jews, most often the Jews stood when they prayed. But in times of great urgency and in times of great fervency in prayer, they would drop down to their knees and they would pray. It was really a sign of submission. It was a sign of humbling themselves before God as they dropped down to their knees to prayer. Um, Abraham, when he prayed, it says that he stood before the Lord. Uh, If you're familiar with the story of um, uh, King Solomon when he dedicated the temple, uh, there's two accounts of that. And the one account says that as Solomon, uh, Solomon began to pray, he stood, and he began to pray God, and he blessed the congregation. And the second account of that, it says that Solomon fell to his knees and prayed. So Solomon did both. He stood and he went to his knees. David, um, when he got this amazing news uh, from God that he would have a name forever, it says that he went into the presence of God and he sat there. Have you ever just sat in the presence of God? Every once in a while I go out to my study and I, I don't really want to sit. I don't want uh, I, I, I to kneel and so I just sit. And it's, uh, it's just a way that I talk with God um, and have a conversation with God. It's a very relaxing way to talk about God. It's a very humble way to be in God's presence. It's very casual, but it's a great way to pray. Um, you go a little bit farther and you read in, in Daniel about Daniel, who his habit was to kneel. And it said three times a day he knelt before the Lord. You go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and what do you find there? When Jesus was to pray, it says that Jesus fell on his face before God. He was prostrate before the Lord. Um, And so all of these are are different postures in prayer, and they all mean different things. They all reflect an attitude of the heart. Uh, Luke chapter 18, verse 11 to um, 13, talks about the publican and the sinner. And you remember that story, how, how the publican, the Pharisee, he was full of pride, and it says that he stood up, and he said, thank you, God, that I am not like Um, the rest of people. I don't do this and I don't do that and you're lucky to have me as one of yours. And then Jesus says, and there was a sinner and he couldn't even lift his eyes up to God and he was beating his breasts. That's posture. Eyes, you know, sometimes when when your kids have done something wrong, they can't give you eye contact. You know, because they kind of look down like this. Well, because sometimes that's a sign of shame or it's a sign of guilt. Beating the breast is, is the same kind of sign. So the, the body, the way they use the body, illustrates the attitude of their heart. Sometimes if you're, if you're coming before God and, and you're treating your sin lightly, maybe you need to just come into his presence and just bow your head and say, God, I am so sorry for what I did this week. Maybe other times you need to be hit by the, the awesome power and majesty of God and be driven to your knees. Because you're before the one who is all-powerful and almighty. Sometimes the situation may be so desperate that you just fall on your face before God. Say, I don't know what to do. So, body posture. I think it, it adds to our understanding of prayer. Um, what, who should I pray to? Now, that may be simple enough. Um, but Paul, I think, gives us a, a little bit of indication. Is for this reason... I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. This is a a staggering from a number of points of view and and instructive. One, Paul has just been talking about this God who has done all these amazing things and he calls him Father. Father. That's who we address in prayer. Father. 
And, and you, you go through the Bible, and, and I only find about three places in Scripture where you actually pray to Jesus, where you pray to the Lord. I find no instances in Scripture where you pray to the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not saying that that's wrong because they're all God. The Holy Spirit is God, Jesus is God, and God the Father is God. But the, the manner of Scripture, both the teaching of Jesus, when the disciples asked him, who should I pray to? They said, well, you should pray our Father who art in heaven. Um, uh, so, so the instruction and the example of, of Scripture is almost always we pray to the Father. And it's an amazing fact, he says here, the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. Do you understand that, loved ones? That when you come to God in prayer, you come to God as part of this massive, worldwide, heaven and earth, history-long family of God that all has this amazing privilege of calling the same God Father. How is it that we come to call the God who created this world Father? It's because we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And as John would tell us, you must be born again. In order to come into the presence of God and call Him Father, we have to be a child of God. What an amazing privilege. So who do you pray to? The, 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 the other thought that I had is, is this. Is God really able to answer my prayers? I, I'm sometimes amazed that, 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 that we don't believe that. Uh, and it's sometimes reflected in the nature of our praying. Uh, if you ever have time and you want to just do a little bit of uh, uh, um, looking, you might want to type in, in Google um, Charles Spurgeon and, and type in prayer and see if it brings up one or two or three of his sermons on prayer. The, the, they are so instructive and so helpful. Because Spurgeon was one who again and again would say, why is it that we walk into the presence of the God of this universe and we ask him for stuff that our neighbor could provide for us? That's not what he says, but that's sort of a, a paraphrase. He says, we ought to be asking of God big things that, 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 that demonstrate the reality of who our God is. And so, do we really believe that God is able to answer our prayers. He says, I pray that God would grant you. First of all, we come to a God who's gracious and merciful. He's going to grant us. Uh, he, he, he doesn't base his answers to our prayers on, 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 on whether we deserve them necessarily or on, on, on how good or bad we've been. God is a gracious God. But then he says, notice what he says, that he would grant you according to his riches in glory. As the New Living Bible it says, it says that he would grant you um, uh, according to his glorious unlimited resources. Loved ones, when you go to God in prayer, do you ask requests that befits one who is the king of the universe? Or are you hesitant to ask him stuff? It could be your own fear. It could be that you've asked stuff before and it hasn't been answered. It could be any number of reasons. But, loved ones, we need to be those who walk boldly into the presence of God and are not afraid to ask Him for anything because nothing is impossible with our God. And so those are just some of my, my, the general thoughts that I have as I think about this. Then we go in and just think about this example of prayer and some things that, that I was amazed at because I have not prayed some of these ever in my life. And I thought, Paul, you have just demonstrated how your prayer knife needs to continue to grow. 
Um, John Stott calls these four things that Paul prays for. He calls them like a prayer staircase. Four steps um, that we walk up in, in prayer. And uh, one of the words was strength, another is love, another is knowledge, another is fullness. Four requests that Paul prays for as he goes uh, on, uh, to God on behalf of these people. Notice the first thing that he prays for, and I put it this way, strength to make my heart a home for Jesus. Have you ever prayed that for anybody? That God would strengthen them through his Holy Spirit so that Christ might dwell in their hearts through faith. To, 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 to pray for strength means that they would be made strong or that they would go, grow strong through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now we know that the moment regeneration takes place, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. So Paul is not praying for that. What he is praying is that we would know more of the fullness of the Spirit in our lives, more of the enabling power of the Spirit in our lives. As Acts says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witness to the end of the earth. It's the, uh, Paul in another place says that when the power of the Spirit comes upon us, we abound in hope. In another place it says when Jesus was anointed, he went out in the power of the Spirit doing good. Um, Paul in another place says, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives, then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. In other words, we will, we will be able to increasingly live in a manner that pleases God. So he says, I pray that they would be strengthened by the power of the Spirit. And then notice what he says, in the inner man. That's, in, that's our heart. That's our soul. That's, our, that's, that's a, who we are inside. Do you know that our inner man sees? Open their eyes that they might see wonderful things from your word. Do you know that our inner man hears? He who has ears to hear, let him heed these things. Do you know that our inner man tastes? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Do you know that our inner man needs cleansing? Create in me a clean heart, O Lord, and renew a right spirit within me. Do you know our inner man needs food? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. All of those ways are ways in which our inner man is strengthened. And so he says that they would be strengthened in their inner man. Why? So that Christ may have a home in their hearts. That's, that's amazing to me. The New Living Translation says, And I pray that Christ will be more and more at home in your hearts as you trust him. The Greek has two words for being at home. One is a word that's used for a traveler that goes and stays in an inn for a night and then keeps on going. It's a temporary guest. Another is a word, which is the word used for here, is one that means comes and makes a home and settles there. He's saying, I... Pray that all of this will happen so that Christ will settle in your hearts and find a home there. Because you and I know that, that there are rooms that we close off to Christ. There are things that, that because of our actions or because of our weaknesses or because of our doubt that, 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 that Christ doesn't have a... We, we don't give Him access to every part of us. And so He says, I pray through the power of the Holy Spirit 
in your inner man by the enabling of the Spirit as we, as we walk and as we learn and as we live that Christ would more and more find a dwelling place in our hearts. That's amazing. And that's the first thing that Paul prays for these people, that they might be strengthened in their inner hearts or inner man that Christ may dwell there. Is your home a heart for Christ? Is, or is he a visitor, an occasional sort of guest where many rooms are off limits? See, the burden of Paul's prayer here is all too rare. Do we really believe that we need to be strengthened in our inner man so that Christ might have a home inside of us? I wonder if this was what St. Patrick was meditating on when he prayed his famous prayer, Christ be with me and within me. Christ be behind me and before me. Christ beneath me and above me. May your salvation, Lord, be always ours this day and forevermore. Second thing that he prays for uh, is love. That it would be the stability and the foundation of my life. These are, these are basic things, but I'd never have thought of them really before. Do you think of this? And then the New Living Translation puts it this way. May your roots go down deep in the soil of God's marvelous love. May your roots go down deep in the soil of God's marvelous love. He uses two word pictures here. The, the one is um, being rooted. It's a picture of a tree that, that finds good soil. And when a tree finds good soil, it puts down deep roots and it can then withstand the storms and the, the winds that come at it. What is he saying is the foundation and the stability of an individual's life? The marvelous love of God. In other words, we are to put down the roots for stability in our life in a contemplation and understanding of the marvelous love of God. What gives you stability when you go through lousy times? What is it that nourishes you when you feel dry? Where do you draw strength and nourishment from? Is it? from contemplating and from thinking about and being thankful for the marvelous love of God? The second term that he uses is grounded. It's an architectural term that you might be rooted and grounded. In other words, he's talking about a foundation. He's saying that you would have a deep, strong foundation in the love of God so that you might be able to grow up high and be sturdy and stable. If there is no deep, sound foundation, the building will never be safe and sound. If you go, don't go down deep, you can't go up high. Again, why the love of God? What does he say a little bit earlier? That God loved you before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? That means before I ever did anything right or wrong, God loved me. What does that mean now? I can disappoint God. I can... I can, I can, I can uh, make God have to use discipline in my life, but God will never stop loving me. What does it, it mean for, for situations in our, in our life when we, when we think that this is pulling against me and this is pulling against me? What does Paul say in Romans? That nothing shall be able to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. What about 
the, the, the love of God that made us alive. You were dead in your sins and trespasses, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love, made you alive. Loved ones, we need to find our rooting and our grounding in the marvelous love of God. So though no matter what comes our way, we will never be shaken from that firm foundation of love that will not let us go. Some of you know that hymn, O love that will not let me go. I rest my soul on thee. What is it? My weary soul on thee. That I'm sure must have been rooted from this particular thing. Do you know that, that I've observed this, this is me antidotally, but I've observed that uh, in homes where the parents love each other, and it is demonstrable and it is evident, most often there is great stability for the kids. Because they know that their mom and dad love each other, they are committed to each other, they're not going anywhere, and so it brings security and stability to the child's life. That's the same as a Christian. That if we are rooted and grounded in the knowledge of our Father's love for us, we will be firm and we will not be easily shaken. So he prays that they might know something of this amazing, marvelous love of God so that they would be stable and firmly rooted. The third thing that he prays for is knowledge that I might love Christ this much. That will make sense in a moment. Knowledge that I might love Christ this much. This is not unsimilar to the first point or the last point we just made. But he wants us to know the extent of Christ's love for us. He wants you and I to know that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. He wants us to know that the love of Christ found us, the love of Christ will keep us, and the love of Christ will take us into eternity. He's not going anywhere. I can't go anywhere. Again, oh, love that will not let me go. And so he's praying, I want you to, to somehow begin to comprehend to think about somebody who would die for you. To think about somebody who loved you so much that even when you hated him, he gave his life for you. To think about someone who shed his blood for you. To think about someone who said, I will live in a way that, I, that they can't live and I will give them my righteousness. To think about one who prays for us. To think about one who has redeemed us. To think about this amazing love of Christ for us. Because as we come to know the love of Christ, we find security and we find stability and, and we, find, we find comfort. There is, a tragic, there is a tragic comedy called The Thousand Clowns and a child tells his mother, I love you six. Why six? Because that's as high as he can count. In other words, this little child is he's stretching the extent of his knowledge of love to as far as he can go. And for him, it's the number six. Mommy, I love you, six. What is Paul saying here? Children of God, Christ's love reaches to the heights, reaches to the depths, reaches to the breadth, reaches to the length. There is no limit to the love of God for you. 
Christ's love for his people is as long as eternity passed. It's as, it's as, as wide enough to include all the nations of this world. It is so high that it can ring the praises of angels in heaven. It is so deep that it can cancel the claims of hell upon a person's soul. Knowing that that is how wide and how high and how long and how deep Christ's love is should give us enormous stability. We will, and what he says too is he says you will never fully understand that. This is amazing. He prays that we would know and they said but you'll never know. But keep trying to know. Just, just fix yourself in the fact that Christ loves you. Christ loves you. Look at what he's done for you. Look at what he's promised to do for you. Don't let go of the fact that Christ loves you. Every once in a while I hear a comment um, from from and sometimes it's new couples, um, and you know they maybe just had a, their first baby, and they said, I, "We can't have any more kids because we just won't have enough love for them." You know, this, I just oh, I just I don't know how I'll ever love another kid this way. And it's not until you have a second or a third or a fourth or a tenth or a twelfth that you begin to realize that love is like this endless thing. You, you can't contain love. You, you, can't, you can't say, that's all the love I've got, I've got no more. And if you're here this morning, and you, you, you don't know the love of Christ, and you think, well, look at all these people around me. How could Christ ever love me? There's not enough to go around. That is a lie from the pit of hell. There is enough love of Christ to go around to reach every single man, woman, boy, and girl, and then still be an infinite amount left over. Don't leave here thinking that Christ doesn't love you. Don't leave here thinking that Christ will never love you. Christ's love is so high, it is so wide, it is so long, it is so deep that his love reaches out to you and to me and everyone in this world. And this is what he prays, that you might know the love of Christ. The final thing, that he prays for is uh, an amazing thing as well. He says, filling. Filling that I have to ask God to stop. I, you know, I wrestled with this, and I'll be honest with you, I, I don't know if I still have a handle on, on this. How do we pray that God would fill people with the fullness of God? Just, just so we know we got it straight. That does not mean that we will be little gods. That is not taught anywhere in Scripture. There is no point in which you or I become gods. We never will be. We never can be. We never were. So he's not talking about that they might be deified. But he's praying something along the lines that, that, that somehow God would just would, would, would fill every cell and every pore and every thought of their lives. And you get a little bit of glimpse of that with, with Jesus when it says, In him the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. In other words, God was in heaven, God the Father was in heaven, but as Christ walked on the earth, the fullness of God dwelt in him. I think in part that means the, the, the will of God. So, you know, that, 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 that I'm so in tune with God that every thought, every word, every action, every deed is driven and it's motivated by God. I am so full of God that I just do what God has created me to do. 
I think that's in part what it means. But I, I thought maybe the best way to, to illustrate it is just from that, uh, an illustration. A number of years ago, I remember just doing some reading on what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit and uh, picked up Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, Joy Unspeakable. And I, I like his take on it, although I don't agree with it 100%. But in there, he's, he, he's talking about different instances of people who have experienced the fullness of God. And one story he tells is about um, Dwight L. Moody. D.L. Moody, um, a famous evangelist preacher. He started the Moody Church in Chicago. He traveled around the world. Um, thousands of people responded to Christ because of his ministry and his teaching to them. Um, and D.L. Moody, though, he wasn't satisfied with how much of God he had. And uh, he had been a Christian for quite a while. He had, as I said, not only been a, a Christian uh, but a minister, he'd been in charge of this mission in this church, and he was seeing more and more conversions, but he still was not satisfied with God. And so he says, I began to cry as never before for a greater blessing from God. The hunger increased. I really felt that I did not want to live any longer. I kept on crying all the time that God would fill me up with his spirit. Well, one day in the city of New York, oh, what a day. I cannot describe it, and I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. Paul had an experience of which he never spoke of for 14 years. I can only say, God revealed himself to me. And I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. That, to me, is something of the fullness of God. Stop, or I'm going to explode. Stop, because I cannot handle this, this, what, what, it, what I'm thinking and how I'm acting and what's going on in my life. Stop, or I'm going to die. I think that's what Paul was praying for. He was praying for these people that they would be so filled with God that they would have to say, no more, God. Not anymore today. Maybe tomorrow, but no more for today. That is the staircase Uh, that John Stott refers to. It's the first one is, the first step is strength. So that my home might become a, or my heart might become a home for Christ to dwell in. The second step is love. The marvelous love of God so that I would be stable and grounded no matter what life threw at me. The third step, knowledge. That I might come To know that Christ loves me this much. And the fourth step is that I might be filled with the fullness of God that I would have to say, that's enough. Stop. 